Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. If you had asked me when I started this show six years ago who my top ten possible interviews were, who I would who would be my dream interviews, it would be impossible not to have Philippe Petit on that list. He might have even been number one. And we actually got this interview, the man who walked on a wire between the two towers of the World Trade Center. Recently, a movie has come out. It's called The Walk. In it, Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays Philippe Petit. We thought it would be a great time to rerun this show. It's an amazing interview. It was done around the time that Philippe Petit was watching Joseph Gordon-Levitt get ready to play him. So that's you'll hear that in there somewhere in this interview. But it's a wide-ranging interview about a lot of aspects of creativity, about the way Petit lives his life, which to me is an even bigger thing than the walk between the towers. So I hope you enjoyed this. This is a rebroadcast of an interview we did with the great, Philippe Petit. Thank you for gathering here today on top of Hartford's famous Phoenix Mutual Boat Building. The celebrated performer Kyone Wolf will walk from here to the Traveler's Tower and back in a daring celebration of life. Ladies and gentlemen, Kyone Wolf. Thank you. I don't really know what all this fuss is about. I'm, I'm very happy to do this, but it's not a very difficult walk. Words like that inspire us. Here is your balancing pole. Oh, I'm not going to need that. I have perfectly good balance. It's not like I'm falling around all the time. So as soon as you set up, I'll just walk over there and, and back. We are set up. Well, no, you're not, because the only thing going between the two buildings right now is this little wire. So uh, just set up the footbridge or whatever you're going to use, and I'll be on my way. The wire is the whole idea. You're supposed to walk on that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I'll walk on the wire. No, seriously. Where's where's the bridge? There's only the wire. Would it help if I give you a little push to get you started? No push, no push, no push. Let's all just calm down and take a deep breath here. I'm sure we can figure out an acceptable compromise, right? I mean, um, how about if I throw a frisbee over to the other building? Not acceptable. Okay, then I'm going to step inside for a minute uh, or two and change into a special costume that I have. And when I come back out, I'm going to look like an eastern gray squirrel. It'll look like my whole body is only 10 inches long. That's the, the miracle of this costume. And just to help me get my bearings, have the people in the other tower wave peanuts, okay? <sighs> Actually, I'm not even sure I can talk a squirrel into doing this, but you're about to meet Philippe Petit the man who walked between the World Trade Center towers. And now the man who gets dizzy if his Starbucks cup is too tall, Colin McEnroe. Philippe Petit is a wire walker, a busker, a magician, a builder of barns, and therefore a skilled carpenter, uh, and the author of many books, most recently Creativity, The Perfect Crime. He's joining us from the studios, Argo Studios in, in New York City. I want to begin, actually, with something from the documentary about Philippe Petit. It's, it's actually the, the famous documentary, of course, Man on Wire. And obviously, this is the story of his crossing 
between the two towers, and, and not just once, but back and forth and back and forth for 45 minutes, uh, lying down on the wire and uh, kneeling on the wire. And it's obviously the most breathtaking spectacle that you can possibly imagine. But oddly enough, what really made me sit bolt upright in my movie theater seat came at the end of the documentary when when Philippe Petit kind of he kind of issues very casually this this kind of manifesto about creativity, which I think kind of is the the run up to this book and to the conversation we're going to have today. So let's just hear that that little speech that he gives on in, in uh, towards the end of Man on Wire. To me, it's it's really it's so simple that life should be lived on on the edge of life. You have to exercise rebellion. To refuse to uh, taper yourself to rules, to refuse your own success, to refuse to repeat yourself, to see every day, every year, every every idea as a as a true challenge, and then you are going to live your life on a tightrope. So, Philippe Petit, when you said those words uh, in that movie, I really did sit bolt upright in my seat and said, "That's it, isn't it? That's in a you know just a, a matter of what's that? Maybe twenty or thirty words." the perfect statement about how to live an artistic and creative life, especially that challenge of making every day different, seeing every day as a challenge and insisting that one day be different from another. Is that in, in a way the, the inspiration for the book that we're going to be talking about today? Yes, and also framing that statement was the beautiful music of Eric Satie, the exactly. gymnopédie, which is full of space as well. But yes, this uh, the, the rebellion that you picked up from Man on the Wire, I put it uh, right there on the cover of my 10th book, Creativity, the Perfect Crime. Why the perfect crime? Because, of course, it's a metaphor. I'm an artistic criminal. I don't steal. I give. I offer. I inspire. You have, in my opinion, a self-taught uh, person, you have to rebel to be able to create fully. Running through civilization is that notion that the most important creative discoveries are essentially forbidden. Prometheus steals fire and he's punished for it. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and, and that's there in your book, too, this notion that this kind of esoteric knowledge and this kind of uh, and the esoteric knowledge that leads to creative acts is sort of forbidden. And it almost seems like it might even be there in your childhood. Uh, I mean, did you have a sense once this kind of fire lit up inside you that, that you were doing something that the authorities didn't want you to do? Yes, but first I have to say I am very unhappy to uh, hear you say uh, the Prometheus story because now I am totally jealous. You should have told me that. <laughs> it would have been the first word of the book. <laughs> well, there's but, always the paperback. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, one of the one of the activities that you talk about in the book, the, I, I hope I say it correctly, the parkour, this whole idea of going to the into the woods and challenging yourself in, in various ways. That does seem to be something that uh, your father gave you. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and even if he didn't give directly, I received as a kid because, you know, when whenever you hear someone say I am an autodidact, it's a it's a lie because <laughs> you have many invisible teachers. You have I wouldn't say heroes, although in America we, we love uh, the idea of heroes and gurus and gods. But I would say people that I respected very much that I met or I didn't meet were part of my self-education. So I was not alone. All right. I, I want to talk about those invisible teachers in just a second. But uh, one of the images uh, that jumped out at me from the book uh, was the image of you running up the stream with the rocks in it. T tell the people that story. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I was I was a kid and I was playing with climbing and on rocks. Uh, every year we'd go to the Jura, you know, for vacation. So as a five, six years old, I started uh, climbing rocks, and of course my parents could not uh, hold me. And at some point, one of my uh, favorite activity was to find a little torrent and then to go back to its source by jumping from rock to rock. But if I would jump and land, I would slip and I will, you know, not get my balance and I will finish in the water. But if I will keep bouncing from rock to rock, then I will succeed. Except what does that mean? Well, it meant in midair, I had a millionth of a second to decide on which rock I was going to land or actually to bounce uh, from to the next one. And as I was doing that, since I was learning by myself uh, Russian, just out of pure <laughs> joy, I uh, started screaming each letter of the alphabet in Russian when I bounced off the next rock. You know, I want to talk about these invisible teachers and visible teachers because we, we began the conversation with this whole idea of Promethean knowledge. And you, at a very early age, began to be attracted to, to a very esoteric form of that knowledge. You're interested in magic. You're interested in juggling. You're, you're interested in a kind of knowledge that's often passed from one person to another in kind of shadowy ways, you know, in the semi-darkness behind a circus tent or in some smoky cafe or a, a dressing room, not in a sterile classroom. I, wanna, I want you to tell at least one story of that kind of mentoring. I would specifically love the story of your wire walker mentor who actually made you buy little pieces of knowledge from him. Tell that story. I became a master of deception after reading uh, books on magic as a kid, and I could have become a supreme con man. Instead, I chose the artistic path, although at some point for a few months I was a criminal pickpocket in the street, but I managed to you know, give back the people what I stole, what I was interested in was the ballet of the fingers. But to answer your question, some of uh, the people who have uh, really shaped my creativity was this old man, we called him Papa Rudy. Rudy Omankowski was a veteran from the old circus, the time when you were doing all kind of things. He was a great war walker, but he was a clown and he was a trapezist. And um, he's the one who uh, I refused to learn wire walking from him, but I learned rigging, the art of installing the wire, which is, of course, the act prior to walking on a wire. And at the beginning, I, I got, uh, 18 years old, I got a... Uh, uh, price, uh, a grant from uh, an artistic uh, French uh, institution, and every single cent of that money went to Papa Rudy <laughs> because he didn't give me out of friendship his secrets, he called those secrets, he will buy, uh, sell them to me, so I will buy a nut, I will buy an information, oh, uh, how do you make this balancing pole? Oh, that's $20, here's $20, <laughs> and I will, so of course after a few months of that uh, uh, you know, stupid market we became friends, and there was no more money involved, and I had no money anymore. It all went from my pocket to his. But I thought it's ironic to recall such adventure because, you see, all what I have learned, I have learned either by trial and error, either by duress, either by... Uh, spending more time than anybody else because I had no teachers. So, of course, all those notions that I have acquired are extremely important to me. I cherish them, and they become secrets. And I, I won't give out those secrets, which is not true, because in my book I give many of those <laughs> to the reader. 
You know, you said you were talking before about the parkours and, and how it's become kind of institutionalized a little bit. Everything becomes institutionalized. So today, everywhere you look, there's clown colleges and you go and become a guest teacher at someplace, something like the Lab for Action Mechanics. You give TED Talks. Does all of that, which is all conducted in brightly lit classrooms, does it suck a little of the dark, forbidden deliciousness out of the way this knowledge was passed on to you in, in much less formal environments? No, because I have found my balance, uh, pun intended, of <laughs> course, because it's very sad to finish your life with a bunch of knowledge and secret, as I call them, tied to your chest. At some point in your life, a master has to give to the students. And, of course, I choose my student when I do workshops, but because you don't want to uh, pass on the knowledge to people who don't really care or who are not uh, motivated. But the act of passing this knowledge, the, the act of teaching, is something very important to me. And I have the satisfaction of having all my students, even the people who listen to my lecture, come back to me and say, Wow, you have changed our lives. You you have opened doors. We we never heard somebody talk and act like you do. So, no, it's just a matter of finding the balance of uh, uh, keeping uh, the most valuable thing in your life and at some point sharing them. Uh, we're talking to Philippe Petit. Uh, the book is Creativity, The Perfect Crime. I want to just stay with this whole idea of the crime and the forbiddenness of this for just a second. You've been arrested. You say you've lost count, but you know you've been arrested more than 500 times, correct? Yes, as a, mostly as a street juggler, as an illegal highway walker, and I'm proud of that number, but you know what, I am, I'm busy, so I stop counting. <laughs> is that, do you think for you, for your temperament, the kind of personality that you have, is that an important wall that you need to have there to push back against the whole idea of people telling you you can't do things? Obviously, you know, when we get to the story of the World Trade Center, that's very much the story of people telling you you can't do something. For who you you are, is that part of the spark and the spur of creativity? Yes and no, but to be honest, it's not a need. This calling for the, well, for exploration, for stepping over the boundaries, for, let's say, breaking the rules, is not a need. It is something that is in me, and it comes with a passion. The passion is a motor like a tiger. It makes you leap forward, and you have no time to really think. You follow your passion. That's why when people uh, uh, ask me, uh, wh why do you do what you do, my favorite answer is, uh, I I have no choice is the best answer. What do you paint? Because I have no choice, because I, I am a painter. I wake up and I have to paint. So it's not so much a need, but it's a almost a condition of creativity. And that's why uh, this book has a lot of the angle of the the word criminal, of course, applies only to the to the mind here, you know, or to the artistic criminal. But there is a, a breaking of the rule. There is an unlawfulness that to me is inherent to the act of creating. You know, when you say that you have no choice, uh, that comes up pretty literally, I think, um, <laughs> in a number of occasions. I mean, especially with the World Trade Center, right? There was at least one point where because of a change in the rules, and I'll let you tell that story, it looked like maybe you just couldn't do the World Trade Center. Maybe you should find a different building. And the way that you describe it in the book, you just couldn't. You, you couldn't find a different place to do it because you had no choice, right? You had to do this. I'll let you tell the story, though. Well, th th yeah, if you're referring to the incident where at some point in my eight months of organization, 
uh, or maybe like there or in New York prior to uh, sneaking in the towers with a ton of equipment uh, on August 7th, 1974, I realized that the employees had now to carry an ID. We are uh, a few months before August 1974. So suddenly my entire dream falls apart, and it did many times before that. So I looked around in New York for other towers, but the towers, the twin towers, did not allow me to uh, to cheat on them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, again, it was almost, um, it was not my mind. It was a certain passionate mutter that brought me back to the towers. And yes, at some point, I must say uh, proudly, of course, mm-hmm. that I uh, manufactured some IDs, some false IDs which I used to sneak in the building. So basically, my book and my life are saying the same uh, song, is nothing is impossible. And it would be nice if we are reminded of that sometime at the beginning of our life in schools or by our parents. I want to talk a little bit more about that pull, that urge that makes you absolutely have to do something. You know, the World Trade Center, you said it wouldn't let you uh, cheat on it. It wouldn't let you go to a different building. There's another story you tell in the book, and I can tell it's one of your least favorite stories in the world uh, of, I mean, Philippe Petit, one thing he never does is he never cancels. But you had to cancel in Switzerland. I'll let you tell that story, too. But what I'm intrigued by is your description of yourself making that decision to cancel it, you describe yourself as actually almost asphyxiating. And I think you mean it almost literally, right? You're actually having trouble with your breath, breathing, because this is suffocating you, that you're not going to do this thing that you've already conceived of and pictured in your mind. Well, much more than that. Let's be frank. I I became suicidal. I thought life had no more meaning or no more interest for me because you're referring to something that I... uh, painfully shared with uh, with the reader in my book and i wanted this book to to not be only the glory of creating but to be the the hardship of you know so i mentioned one story in the book in which i plan a high walk and of course not because of my fault because of the producers not providing what they had promised in writing to do, to provide the show could not happen or else it would have endangered the building the people below and the wire walker so i could not cancel and actually it's my companion uh, Cathy O'Donnell who is my uh, production director and uh, companion in crime for 20 years who convinced me or forced on me the fact that, Philippe, I don't want you to die. You cannot break the building. You cannot have a giant accident. We have to cancel. It's not safe. And then I kind of give up that idea, say, okay, let's cancel. We made a press conference to explain who were the culprits. But still, that was no nothing in my heart, I never cancel anything. Even if I have a giant fever, I get on stage and for eight minutes, that fever is waiting backstage for me. <laughs> so I do not believe once you have made a promise to the people or even to yourself, even more so to yourself, as an artist, you have no right to cancel uh, whenever adversity knocks at your door. Anyway, I share that story because it's, a, it's one that actually I, I learned from very much and uh, I'm glad I'm still alive. I'm glad it was cancelled, and I learned from from that. All right, we're going to take a quick break, uh, and we can both catch our breath. Uh, We're going to come back with more Philippe Petit right after this.
You're listening to an interview we did in the past with Philippe Petit. The reason we decided to kind of re-release it right now is that there's a movie out called The Walk that's uh, getting a lot of really positive critical notice. Joseph Gordon-Levitt actually plays Philippe Petit. So we thought it was time to, to unearth. It's, it's one of my favorite interviews of all time anyway. It just He's such an interesting guy. Uh, there just isn't anybody who was anything like him. So I hope you enjoy the rest of it. Meanwhile, I just want to quickly mention, I'll be at the Watkinson School tonight. If you're planning on sending somebody to college, don't do that until you go tonight uh, at 7 o'clock for a forum on whether or not college is really worth it. You'll hear from people, not unlike like Philippe Petit, who led very original lives without getting that four-year bachelor's degree and who've managed to have rewarding careers. But you'll also hear people who are very committed to that idea of the liberal arts education. So that's Watkinson School 7 tonight. Meanwhile, enjoy this interview with the great Philippe Petit. We're talking to Philippe Petit. Uh, his latest book is Creativity, the Perfect Crime. Forty years ago, uh, he wa- did the famous walk between the two towers of the World Trade Center. Right now, though, we're talking about this book. As I sat down and started reading this book, I started thinking, well, Petit, he's creative, but his creativity is kinetic. Uh, he uses his body. It's tactile. That's kind of who he is. But the more that I read the book, the more I started to think maybe all creativity is at some level kinetic tactile, that, you know, ultimately the musician has to sit down at the piano and push the keys with his fingers. The artist has to take uh, his charcoal or his paint and begin a physical engagement with, with the canvas, that there almost isn't any creativity that you don't use your body for. I want you to react to that statement. I salute the fact that you uh, state that statement because it's so essential. That's why I have problem with electronic device. I don't have an iPod, an intelligent phone. I don't have a cell phone. I don't like the computer because it feels that I surrender to a language that is not mine. You know, that is not a maybe button on my computer. That is not a let's daydream button. So I, <laughs> I, I want this tactile thing. I mean, I give you an example, which is not in the book, is that whenever I do a high walk of, of certain scale, I need to fix my mind on a three-dimensional scale model, which I built myself from plan and elevation from architects and engineers. But it does more than just entertain me as a kid. It actually is a tangible fixation for my dream. I refer to it. I take a little ruler. I measure the guideline length. I become the engineer for the project. But also I daydream. I I go into those models as kids go into a dollhouse. And I love it. And loving it and daydreaming and being happy about traveling toward a project is part of making this project happening for me. There is in the book kind of an ode to the pencil and what a pencil is like in your hands. Tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, Describe for people what it is you're saying about the use of a pencil. Oh, yeah, there is a great book about uh, the history of the pencil by Petrovsky. Right. (laughs) <laughs> That's what I love. Well, pencil is thousands of years old, actually. I mean, like a soul, like a mallet, like a chisel. Uh, the, the great pyramids were not drawn by a pencil, probably by charcoal. But anyway, I love those old tools. I don't really need uh, revamping. You know, I, there is also a little clatter. There is a chapter about useless invention. I mean, do we need a pencil with a, with a memory and with a gyroscope and with a 
GPS. Well, I'm sure they, <laughs> they're coming to us soon. But I love the fact that a tool has been proven from thousands of years. And actually, when you hold that tool in your hand, be it an old saw, a chisel, or the pencil that you mentioned, you're holding the history of humanity there. You have to have respect not only for the tool, but for the millions of people who used it, from Michelangelo to the little kid in Kenya, whose name we have forgotten. So I am a poet, of course, and objects and tools are very important, and I dialogue with them, uh, which I talk a lot about in, in the book. And, and once again, I completely forgot your answer, which seems to be one of my specialities. <laughs> well, no, I was asking about the pencil. And you do talk about using a pencil, and it's not simply that you write with it, right? You tap your finger with it. You do. Ah, yeah. ah, yes, yes, yes. You see, I'm going on tangents. That's good. And in, and in my book, I decided, should I share those tangents with the reader? Of course I should. It's part of being creative. So at some point in the book, I interrupt myself, and I put a little blue word in the text. Right. And I explain in the first page, when you See that blue word, go to the end of the chapter and print it in blue. Of course, is a little diversion, a little parenthesis, you know. And I'm sure some people will go through the book and read all the blue text first for fun. So going back to the pencil, yes, a pencil is not only to write. A pencil is to manipulate in between uh, the writing, you know, and we are far from the from the writing block, you know, when you, the author doesn't know what to do. But it's a very healthy, creative moment when the writer lifts his or her pencil or writing implement and then think. And then the pencil is agitated, the pencil is impatient, the pencil knows the next word, but you want to make sure. So sometimes you play, like you doodle on a piece of paper, where you can doodle in the air, you can make uh, the pencil do acrobatics, and I could not resist sharing that with the reader with a little drawing. There is a very difficult, but if you practice for two hours, you'll get it, a little vault in the air, not a jump, but a little circle that the pencil can do around your fingers without leaving your fingers and you have to practice, but once you get it, you're going to be so proud of it. And that's the dance of the pencil. We should talk about at least one of these blue diversions. I'm reading this book, and I'm already very aware of, of who you are, and, and at least I think I'm aware of who you are. It turns out I don't, I don't even know close to everything. But so I know the wire walker. I know the juggler, the magician, uh, the carpenter who builds barns. I, I think I know these things. And then there are a couple of little tossed-off references to bullfighting. And I'm thinking, well, Petit, he's just using bullfighting as kind of a metaphor or an image or something. And, <laughs> and then I get to, this, no. to get to the blue diversion. So. How is it that you came to be involved in bullfighting? Yeah, now, you know what? I don't want to tell that. I think it's nice for the reader to discover it. But I want to tell something very similar and okay. stay with a pencil because there is a diversion called misdirection. Uh, misdirection, of course, for a magician is, is very important for a pickpocket as well. And I share a story of when I was uh, eight years old in, in school. And actually, it was in the middle of summer in Paris and all the windows of the school were open, no air conditioning. And at some point, I point outside and I scream, it's snowing! So all the kids look and giggle. The teachers look, you know, it's human. And then a half a second later, they look back in the classroom to see who is the culprit, because obviously it cannot be, you know, um, snowing in August. And during that time, the reason I had made that misdirection was to steal the pencil, a beautiful pencil with an eraser at the end. Mine didn't have any of my neighbor. And then I say in the text, uh, I said, you know, I still have that pencil. So Patrick Paloche, that's the name of the kid, I remember. <laughs> if you read this, call me, I'll give it back. 
So anyway, di diversion. Um, yes, I can also salute what what interested you, which is the the bullfighting. And instead of talking about bullfighting, there is nothing I talk about in this book that I didn't live through. So instead of talking about bullfighting, I experienced it at least one part of it: the beautiful ballet of the cape and the, the muleta, um, not the fight with the animal to to kill. But I was a student of bullfighting with a group of teenagers who dreamed of become uh, becoming torero in the south of France and north of Spain, and some of them became actually very famous bullfighters. And um, it was part, again, of enriching my creativity. There's actually a beautiful uh, metaphor in there, too, where you talk about, I think it's called the Corencia, which is the, the area that the bull actually wants to get back to. Within the bull ring, there's actually one little part that the bull has, uh, has immediately kind of staked out for himself, and he wants to get back to it. And that, that this is one of the ways that you create, or that the bullfighter creates the acceleration in the bull that he wants, uh, is to come between the bull and this Corencia. Do I have the right word? Yeah, yeah. But you know what? This is very well uh, picked up by you because it's much more important than an anecdote about a, an activity that is not understood in America, you know, bullfighting. But it has to do with what I call spatial, the space, mm -hmm. spatial alchemy. Because the territory, animals know that, you know, animals prey and hunt and hide and eat in spatial territories. They also mark their territories, you know. And we humans do that too, but we we have forgotten the animalistic part of our humanity and it's 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 a shame because we have 12 senses and we are reduced to just a few now but this uh, sense this idea of territory can be seen every day in a body language of people the way the way they they lean against their new car to protect it to show their ownership the way they pat the head of their little son saying he's so smart again you know protection and ownership and um, it's very interesting so I took the, the bullfighting uh, that has a very important use of the territory of the animal and the man to open the door to this idea of how important it is for us humans to understand and mark and respect and control our territory and the one of others. All right, Philippe Petit, half the people listening to the radio just went, wait a minute, 12 senses? How can there be 12 senses? You better tell them what you mean. Well, no, we have probably five or 16 from prehistoric time. And then as civilization supposedly made us progress, I believe they also, the progress also uh, eroded like Niagara Falls, you know, eat up uh, one grain of sand at a time, all our senses. And today, I think we just have a few senses. The rest is taken care of by those stupid little electronic <laughs> items that we lean on. I mean, you see somebody going through New York City and they have earphone and they, they look down at their little screen of course, they're going to be hit by a bus. Of course, they're going to sprain their ankle in a pothole. Nobody smells and touch and listen and looks really anymore. I look in the streets of New York. I always look up because tall buildings are my friends and they call me. But I look at people and the, most of them drag their shoes or look again at their little instrument that they carry. Nobody looks at the marvel of architecture that a city is made of. So anyway, I could go on and on. Maybe my next book will be about uh, use your 12 senses. I love this idea. All right. Philippe Petit, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back for our final uh, segment. We do, of course, want to hear a little bit about what happens on the 40th anniversary of the World Trade Center a wire walk, although I'm guessing you probably actually won't tell us. Let's take that break, and we'll come <laughs> right back. Find yourself.
All right, I just got one of those pencil things that he was talking about, and it has no bars. Is there like a password I need to make it connect? Or Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Anna Novak and Josh Nalea. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Leon Russell. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff juggling truffles, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. We're talking to Philippe Petit. The occasion for this, well, one of the occasions is Creativity, the Perfect Crime, his new book, his 10th book, I believe, Robert Zemeckis, one of the most celebrated directors uh, in, in America, and, and a director who really does specialize in embracing and perfecting the, the latest film technology. Uh, so he, whether it's 3D or the kind of technology they do on, on, in Polar Express, I mean, he's always kind of on the, the leading edge of that. He's going to make a film based on your life. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, great choice to play you. Ben Kingsley is going to be in it as well. Is this something you welcome, a, a sort of a more an acted out, and, and not necessarily fictionalized, but uh, an acted out version of, of your story? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, many years ago when uh, Robert Zemeckis called me, that's when the adventure started. I could have said, no, I'm not interested in, uh, you know, passing on uh, my book to reach the clouds, which now, of course, is titled, retitled Man on Wire. So it's not a book, it's not a film, feature film about my life. It's a feature film about uh, my walk between the Twin Towers. And it's amazing because I was told not long ago by a cinematographer that it's probably the first time in the history of movie making that a documentary and a feature film are being made of exact, about exactly the same uh, subject. But of course, they will be two different films. And, you know, it's, it's ironic because I am not allowed to talk about uh, the film, which is being <laughs> uh, shot uh, almost as we speak, but I am allowed to say what the trade papers have already announced, which is almost everything, which is it will be a reconstitution of my war warp. And fortunately, I will not play myself either as a street juggler, either as a wire walker, but I hope to bring to the project as much fidelity to my character and my actions as, as possible, and I have had a great uh, relationship with uh, Robert Zemeckis starting seven, eight years ago. We filmed me on the wire. We did many approach, and then I also I can say that because uh, you could have read it somewhere already. I was happy to do a two-week workshop for Joseph Gordon-Levitt, upstate New York, com- in complete secrecy, to teach him not so much how to walk the wire, although after two weeks he was able to walk six feet high, 30 feet long, twice by himself, mm. but also to pass on who I am and who I was 40 years ago, and I assure you, when I go back, when I relive this adventure, it is really as it happened yesterday. So I believe this film is going to be a revolution in filmmaking, in making people, giving people goosebumps, because it's a 3D movie, and it will maybe for the first time in the history of filmmaking do justice to the world of high-wire walking, or at least to my world of high-wire walking. When you did that one part of the the training or the exposure with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, as you say, it's more about getting to know you and who you are, but you did teach him how to to walk the wire. What do you say to somebody like Joseph Gordon-Levitt who's never walked out on a wire before he tries it? What, What words do you say? 
You see, this workshop was a lot of on body language. I didn't say much. I mean, sometime actually I teased him uh, by imitating his his <laughs> wrongdoing and, of course, you know, um, um, emphasizing. And then he will, better than words, he will immediately on the next step correct, you know, his movement. I think a good teacher does not impose knowledge. A good teacher opens door a little bit, keeps them ajar, and the best teacher is yourself. And this young man, you know, I, I call him the kid out of friendship, um, this young actor uh, who has uh, behind him tons of experience and film, was a very focused and very tenacious a learner with a lot of respect uh, for the tools uh, of the trade and for his teacher. So we had a great time and we became friends. Did you teach him to juggle? Yes, but he knew already how to juggle. But I, again, I opened a few doors and I talked about the plane, the vertical plane that the three balls mm -hmm. have to stay within so you don't move forward or move backward as you juggle. But, you know, those things take a lifetime. So the, the, the difficulty that an actor has and mostly the added difficulty of playing somebody who, who is there in front of you uh, but doing things difficult like juggling and while walking is immense and you need just the spirit of it if the spirit can transpire on film and with the artistry of Robert Zemeckis as his director, I am certain it will, then that's all what you need. You know, a two seconds of the hands of the actor juggling and after that you can cut invisibly to a, to a real juggler will be enough to pass on the spirit. And that's really what I am most uh, interested uh, when I said yes to that movie adventure is that the spirit of my adventure remains, you know, that I don't become like a mime in the streets when I am a street juggler who, who never does mime, that type of thing. So I am completely confident that this adventure is going to be a, a fun path and a very inspiring and enriching result for every spectator. I want to come back to the book for a second, uh, Creativity of the Perfect Crime by Philippe Petit. So we began our conversation with that little clip from Man on Wire where you say you have to exercise uh, in rebellion. You have to refuse your own success, refuse to repeat yourself to see every day, every year, every idea as a true challenge. But one of the things that comes out in this book is the essential paradox of the artist. The, one of the paradoxes of the artist is Everything that we just said, that every day has to be filled with an, an insistence on new invention. On the other hand, to be good at anything, as you just suggested, there's an intense amount of practice. It's one of the things that you talk about in the book, that repetition, repetition, repetition. You just do the same thing over and over and over again. And I think to somebody who's less familiar with what that kind of life is like, you would think, well, wow, isn't there something kind of soul-killing about having to do the same juggling thing, the same wire-walking thing, again and again and again? Doesn't that collide with the basic idea of, of every day being different from another? So explain how you resolve that paradox, assuming you even see it as a paradox. <laughs> yes, yes. And by the way, my, my life is so full of contradiction, and so is this book, of course. <laughs> but yes, you have how can you balance the need for repeating a move thousands of times for a dancer to do 12 pirouettes uh, effortlessly and then uh, how do you keep on the creative edge? Well that's very simple and I explain that actually I guide the reader through an example of me learning a very difficult uh, juggling trick mm -hmm. is that it's not a repetition. It's never, if, if it's a 
say repetition, first you will not really progress, or maybe you know, in a tactile way, your your fingers and you know limbs will become more agile to catch the the ball. But actually, you will not become a great juggler if you just repeat. What you have to do is you repeat with a certain spirit, which is the spirit of of an actor on a stage or a director directing, and you are the actor, you are your own director, which means being very sensitive and critic on not only the move, but the millions of parts that this move is made of. And if you are really correcting yourself, sometimes in invisible ways, as you practice the same move for an hour, it will not be an hour of repeating the same move. It will be an hour, an hour of, a, of, of an adventure in progressing. And sometimes those progress are invisible even to your own eyes, but the ball knows it. I want to end with a question that I you actually were on this show by telephone many years ago or a few years ago anyway when we were talking about creativity and actually your friend uh, and sometimes collaborator Paul Winter was also with us that day. One of the things we talked about that day and I want to come back to it now is there's a whole group of people in this world who would simply assume that your book Creativity the Perfect Crime has nothing to do with them because they think to themselves I am not a creative person. I'm just fundamentally not creative. There are other people who are and I'm not. What's your answer to that? What, do, what would you say if someone said to you, well, it sounds, looks like an interesting book, but I'm not creative? My answer to that is to stomp my feet like a five years old and to enter in a rage because do you walk? Do you breathe? Are you alive? Well, then you have in you the power to create the life you want, the power to move mountains, except, well, maybe sometimes it's not apparent to you or maybe sometimes it has been buried by the powers that be from the moment you grew up and all that is not your fault. So I hope my book will be, again, an opening door to retrieving that we have in ourselves. Everybody has the power to be great or the power to create for themselves a great life. You don't have to become the greatest dancer and the greatest violinist. You can become an artist in the art of living. That's certainly plenty of work right there. But I said the notion that creativity is either learned in school or, or is a recipe of some sort that needs to be learned or that only certain people are born with it is an absurdity. I really think that creativity is in our blood, but maybe, maybe our blood has changed, you know, throughout the generation. And it's time for us to re-infuse, to rekindle the amber of creativity that we have dormant inside us. It sounds like a, a great project for the next 10 years. Reoxygenate our blood, recover at least five or six of those 12 senses uh, that we, <laughs> we lost somewhere along the line. Philippe Petit, what an honor it is to talk to you. I really have, absolutely am in awe of you. Creativity, the Perfect Crime is a great book. We're very excited about the 40th anniversary of the World Trade Center walk and, of course, looking forward to the 3D movie directed by Robert Zemeckis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Kyone Wolf, and this isn't so hard. You just one foot in front of the other. Hey, lady, get out of the middle of the road. Hey, I'm walking between two buildings here.